0: With his masterpiece Eight and a Half, Federico Fellini changed the language of cinema in a way that very few filmmakers ever have. He did so by changing the way we use cinema to understand the world and our place in it. Released in 1963, Eight and a Half was so radical and groundbreaking, not only in its themes but also its techniques, it is hard to imagine cinema existing today without it. Here is Martin Scorsese speaking with Charlie Rose in the wake of Il Maestro's death in 1993.
1: Well... You know, this is the first hundred years of film, and you have people like Griffith. He gives us the uh, vocabulary in a way, and then you have people who take it and go to another level completely, a whole other level, where they explore film to the point of um, that it can do something that no other art form does. So when he made Eight and a Half, he went about 10 light years further, Uh, and this is what Fellini is. I think you know was, uh, an artist of such magnitude that uh, the combination of camera camera movement, music, a theme, yeah. the theme, the actual themes of the piece, um, uh, the look of the film, all of this combines together to make it unlike anything. I started looking at a Botticelli painting, they say only Botticelli can do that.
0: The winner of the Palm d'Or in Cannes, the Golden Lion in Venice, the Blue Ribbon in Tokyo, five Oscars with another twelve nominations. Fellini's entree to film came in 1945 when he was one of four writers on Roberto Rossellini's Rome Open City. With that one film, Rossellini founded cinema's moral responsibility. For over two decades, Benito Mussolini's fascist party had ruled Italy with an iron fist, and the tyrannical regime viewed cinema as nothing more than state propaganda. When the dictator was finally deposed in 1943, there soon emerged a group of filmmakers intent on depicting an Italy free of fascism. Neorealism was a political and aesthetic movement that was absolutely imperative to the revival of European civilization. The Neorealists grew up watching films, did not know of a world without cinema and, having witnessed the near destruction of that world, understood implicitly cinema's function within it. However, even though the movement produced a string of masterpieces such as Rossellini's Paysan, Vittorio De Sica's Bicycle Thieves, Lucchino Visconti's La Terra Trema, and Giuseppe De Santi's Bitter Rice, by focusing exclusively on the grim everyday struggles of post-war Italy, the movement soon drove its content and style into an ideological and aesthetic dead end. Here is Scorsese again.
1: Fellini had something very special, probably more than anybody else, he created his own world, and it was... Um, uh, very, very stylized, extremely stylized uh, visual images with music, the look of people, the way they turned, the way they moved, camera movements. He created his own world, so, so much so that, that the word uh, Fellini-esque became uh, a common word to describe something uh, on the surface uh, you can say bizarre or strange, but uh, actually really like a painter working on film.
0: While Fellini started out as a neorealist, he was soon in search of different subjects. Evitellone, made in 1953, was rooted in his own personal experiences as a young man in his hometown in Rimini. La Strada, made the next year, saw him entering into a poetic, symbolic landscape. Three years later, he explored the tragic in Nights of Cabiria. And finally, in 1960, with La Dolce Vita, Fellini unleashed a satirical yet deeply philosophical examination of post-war Italy. This was no championing of the working-class Italian family, but rather an epic depiction of Rome as a moral wasteland. Clearly, Fellini was journeying from neorealist to the nostalgic, the poetic, the tragic, and with La Dolce Vita, the existential. Condemned by the Vatican for blasphemy, the film became the biggest financial hit in Italian history. Adjusted to inflation, it earned a staggering $163 million at the US box office. Producers from across the globe were lining up to finance Fellini's next picture, and the only question was, what was it going to be about? The truth was, Fellini didn't know. But rather than sit and wait for suggestions, he used his doubt as inspiration, and made a movie about not being able to make a movie. The result has influenced filmmakers ever since, with Woody Allen using it as a template for his 1981 crisis comedy, Stardust Memories. They
1: wind up in jazz heaven. It's they commercial, up jazz it's jazz upbeat. Heaven. It's upbeat, it's commercial. It's stupid. I thought you'd like it, Sandy. you you love jazz. Who is this guy anyhow to rewrite the end of my movie? And, and since when are, are all these guys involved? What the hell's going on? These are the on? new heads of the studio. What do you mean, uh, every six months I meet a new group of studio heads? It's very disconcerting to me, too. But you know, the mortality rate in this business is unbelievable. Yeah, I'll say it is. It's like the Black Plague. Jesus. I think and, you're wonderful. and can I have your autograph? Yeah, I don't want anybody me going to, to, to jazz heaven. That's a, that's a, a nitwit idea. You know, the, the whole point of the movie is that nobody is saved. Sandy, this is an Easter film. We don't need a movie by an atheist. To you, you, to you I'm an atheist. To God, I'm the loyal opposition.
0: on the surface at least eight and a half is about a film director struggling to make a film which would suggest that after all his explorations Fellini had not only hit a creative cul-de-sac but had succumbed to self-absorbed narcissism he was making a film about himself but like all great art eight and a half is also about something else In the film, Fellini's alter ego is Guido Anselmi, played by Marcello Mastroianni. And while Guido struggles with commercial obstacles and creative inertia, Fellini uses that personal inertia to explore the human condition. Specifically, Eight and a Half represents that aspect in all of us where we fail our friends and loved ones, lie to them, steal from them, cheat on them and obsess over ourselves to the point where we lose sight of the real world which is something Charlie Kaufman explored in 2008 when he made Synecdoche, New York.
1: Uh, I won't settle for anything less than the brutal truth. Brutal.
0: Brutal. Uh, each day I'll hand you a scrap of paper. It'll tell you what happened to you that day. You felt a lump in your breast. You looked at your wife and saw a stranger, etc. What?
1: When are we gonna get an audience in here? It's been 17 years
0: as well as that eight and a half represents our individual inability to face up to our responsibilities our propensity for self-delusion our reluctance to be honest with ourselves and with one another which is precisely what bob fossey fessed up to in 1979 with his semi-autobiographical all that jazz
1: i can't go back to that room i can't face those dances i'm stuck Keep staring at me and nothing's coming out. Oh boy, that number's lousy. My song? Lousy? No, not the song. Me, me, the way I'm staging it.
0: Maybe we should cut it. Cut it? I think I'll leave. With Eight and a Half, Fellini presented the film set not as a mirror for his own vanity, but as a microcosm of the outside world, where he could acknowledge, embrace and explore all his failings and successes, and embroider them into a vast, sweet, bitter, romantic, tragic, poetic, ironic, dishonest, misleading, bewildering, bewitching, stimulating tapestry of life. Here is Fellini speaking with the BBC in 1965. Reality is innocence, is pure and is of divine beauty. In the same moment, there is also the other side. I think that when one as had the intuition or the feeling or one has opened that little door, I don't think that he can come back. But, while Fellini's own life was an important inspiration for the film, it is crucial to acknowledge the political, economic and ideological climate that enabled his talent to flourish. In the wake of the Allies' victory in World War II, the United States government enacted the Marshall Plan, which saw a colossal $13 billion investment aimed at not only reconstructing Europe, but also protecting it from the onslaught of communist Russia. Europe not only needed political, economic and ideological revival, it needed a cultural one as well. And it was that climate that created a space for European cinema to flourish. And while the Soviet Union was suppressing individual imagination, Western Europe was celebrating it. So perhaps it is no coincidence that the auteur theory came forth and flourished in the immediate post-war years, the ultimate example of which is Eight and a Half. It is a celebration of art as aspiration, how we use it to reconcile the contradictions and conflicts in our own lives, how through art we can aspire to improve upon and perfect our experiences. Fifty years after it was released, Alejandro Iñárritu, was playing with that idea when this multi-oscar winning Birdman.
1: Reagan, listen, to me, please, for the love of God, listen. Our perfect dream actor is not gonna knock on that door and go, hey fellas, when do I start? You know? Can I talk to you for a second? Yeah, what's up? Did you find another actor? Yeah. Okay. Well, Mike's available. He is? Mm-hmm. Mike who? I thought he was doing the thing. He was, he quit. Or got fired. Mike who? Which is a quit or fire. Well, with the mic, it's usually both. Mike fucking who? Shiner.
0: Yes! <laughs> Jake.
1: Oh my gosh, how do you know Mike Shiner? We share a vagina. You think he'd want to do it? Mm -hmm. How do you know? Because he told me he wanted to do it.
0: In Eight and a Half, Guido is inspired by his dream woman, played by Claudia Cardinale. And yet, his constant pursuit of her is ultimately dispiriting, because when he finally finds her, she spurns him. But in Fellini's hands, even that failure is not a total loss. It transforms into an epiphany. The muse is yet another illusion artists create for themselves as a distraction, an excuse to indulge their fantasies and justify their carnal obsessions. Which is what Todd Haynes explored in 2007, when he went to make his quasi-biopic of Bob Dylan, I'm Not There. Oh, come on, I was straight with you. I thought you had
1: no recollection. Look, I couldn't recall San Francisco at all. I can't really remember El Paso. You shouldn't take it all so personal I don't believe me my current situation far precedes anything from the past well but you never know how the past will turn out
0: (laughs) sorry so much for what Fellini did in eight and a half let's look at how he did it most obviously he intermingled Guido's real life troubles of being constantly addled by his producer who wants to know how much the film will cost his fellow writers who want to know what the film is about, and actors who want to know the characters he wants them to play. Just as in the movie, Fellini kept postponing the start of production, pushing it back no less than six times throughout the spring of 1962, during which time he reluctantly confided to his co-writers, Ennio Flyani, Tullio Pinelli and Brunello Rondi, that he was in crisis. So a script of sorts was presented, And finally, on May the 9th, Fellini called action on his beloved Stage 5 in Cinecita. However, once filming started, things got so complicated, the production dragged on until November. The reason was that Fellini kept adding new characters, new elements and new sequences. The most important being Guido's childhood memories, from which he sometimes draws inspiration, and then his fantasies, which are sometimes expressions of his anxieties. But no matter which emotional arena Guido is in, they all play out to Nino Rota's score. Compounding those three mental states, Fellini began to move the camera as few filmmakers had ever done before. Designing sequences where the lens is in near constant motion. Tracking, tilting, panning and craning. So that we the audience feel that we are not only observing the events, but almost taking part and interacting with them. In a phrase, this is photography as expressive motion. Euphoria, arousal, anxiety, insecurity, surprise, sadness, regret, acceptance. Each time cinematographer Gianni Di Venanzo moves the camera, it is to shape and trace Guido's nervous energy as he forever searches for, and dreams of, an answer to his creative inertia. Which is why the film opens with a dream. Guido is stuck in that 20th century phenomenon, the traffic jam, before trying to escape by flying away. It is a trope Terry Gilliam used early on in his masterpiece Brazil to introduce Sam Lowry, A frustrated clerk who dreams of escaping another 20th century phenomenon, the totalitarian state. Uh,
1: has Has anybody seen Lowry? Has anybody seen Sam Lowry?
0: But until Brazil's finale, it is always very clear what is a dream and what isn't. In Eight and a Half, it's never so easy. This is because when editor Leo Catozzo cuts from reality to memory and fantasy and back again, the transitions are so seamless, it is not immediately apparent which mental space Guido is now in. Confusing at first, it only underlines Fellini's ultimate point because in the end, all three states are one. In the end, Guido finds the only freedom he has is to surrender to the realities, the dreams, the memories, and live within them. He decides to remain earthbound, and that everyone and everything exist in their own orbits around him. Emphasizing that shift are the Oscar-winning costumes designed by Piero Gerardi. Depending on whether they are a friend or foe, each of the characters dress by turn in black or white, but at the end they are all reconciled in perfect monochrome. And for that ending, Fellini orchestrates a circus parade, an event that celebrates life and all its paradoxes, while the circus ring itself serves as a geometric pattern that is neither a beginning nor an end, yet is forever in motion. Over 60 years after it was first released, Eight and a Half is still in motion, weaving its mesmerising tapestry of past and present, fantasy and memory, reality and illusion, fear and hope. Life. <laughs>